you guys bow your hearts with me and we'll go to the word, to the Lord. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this morning, for an opportunity to be with your people and worship together. This hour, as we come to your word, we pray that you would hear our prayer and answer it, Lord. We just sang that we want to know you better. We want to know Christ better. We want to worship him better. We want to live lives that are more pleasing to him. And we know that the way you work in our lives is through your word. As you help our minds to comprehend your truth so that we may walk in that truth. I do pray that this passage would be encouraging to every person who is here or who is watching that we would have the desire to live in this world with heavenly perspective, that we would have the mind of Christ that would guide our decisions, that would guide our choices, so that our lives would be different because we know Christ, because Christ lives in us and he's the one who grants us power to do what we otherwise cannot do. I pray that you would grant me mercy to take us through this passage of scripture for your glory and edification of your people. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to Colossians chapter 3. And this morning, I want to bring you a message entitled, Where is Your Focus? There is more to reality than what you can see with your eyes. Now, that's not a controversial statement for anyone who reads the Bible or anyone who believes in God. But it is a controversial statement and it is a difficult pill to swallow for people in this modern age who worship at the altar of scientism. For those who think that the only thing that you can touch and that you can see, it is a controversial statement. Now just to illustrate this truth, I want you to think for a moment about a count that is recorded for us in the Old Testament in 2 Kings chapter 6. 2 Kings chapter 6, we have a story of King of Aram trying to attack Israel. He gets together with his commanders, and they're planning strategically how and where they're going to attack. But it just so happens that there's a prophet in Israel whose name is Elisha. It just so happens that the Lord reveals to Elisha all the plans that King of Aram has. And Elisha goes to the king of Israel, and he tells him, this is what's going to happen, this is where it's going to happen, this is how it's going to happen. And so the plan of the king of Aram is frustrated again and again. Now he gets frustrated because he thinks that there is a spy among them. He thinks that someone is taking their secrets and taking them to the king of Israel. And then one of his servants come to him, comes to him and says, No, my lord, O king. But Elisha the prophet who is in Israel tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. In other words, you can't hide anything from him. So the king of Aram decides that I got to get rid of Elisha got to get rid of Elisha so that I can defeat Israel. And so he gathers the army and he sends the army to the city where Elisha lives. Now Elisha's servant comes out in the morning and he sees the whole city surrounded by the armies and he's terrified. But Elisha is not. Elisha is not. Elisha says to him, do not fear for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Now, I'm sure his servant kind of looked around and gave him this weird look. It's like, I don't see anybody. But Elisha says, those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And then he prays. 
He prays and says, Elisha prayed and said, Oh, Lord, I pray open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the servant's eyes and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Two men looked at the same situation, but they looked at it with a different perspective. The servant did not see anything but the armies who were about to attack him. And yet Elisha was not worried because Elisha saw something that others did not see. Elisha operated with a different perspective on life. Now, this is not just the Old Testament story because the same thing could be said of the people in the New Testament. For example, think of Paul who's writing this letter. You look at Paul's life, and from a human perspective, it makes absolutely no sense. I mean, just think about it. He was a man who had everything in life. He had prestige. He had status. He had education. He had position. He had wealth. He had everything that you would ever want. And yet, he takes all of that. And he trades it for imprisonment, for beatings, for shipwrecks, for sleepless nights, for hunger, for thirst, and every other human discomfort. Now you might say, Paul, why are you doing this? Why? It makes absolutely no sense. And it makes absolutely no sense if you just look at his life from a human perspective. If you just look at his life, at the things that you could see with your eyes. But if you look at his life the way he looked at his own life, Oh, it makes absolute sense. If you look at his life from a perspective of heaven, it makes absolute sense why Paul is doing what he's doing. A.W. Tozer wrote this. A real Christian is an odd number anyway. He feels supreme love for the one whom he has not seen. He talks familiarly every day to someone he cannot see. Expects to go to heaven on the virtue of another empties himself in order to be full, admits he is wrong so that he can be declared right, goes down in order to get up, is strongest when he is weakest, richest when he is poorest, and happiest when he feels worse. He dies so that he can live, forsakes in order to have, gives away so that he can keep, sees the invisible, hears the inaudible, and knows that which passeth knowledge. You see, in our text today, this morning, Paul commands us to live in this way. He commands all of us as Christians to live in this world with the perspective of heaven. Colossians chapter 3, as Mike mentioned, is a transitional statement between chapters 1 and 2 and chapters 3 and 4. In chapters 1 and 2, Paul has laid the foundation and Paul has explained that if you are in Christ, you are complete in him. You have no need of philosophy, you have no need of legalism, mysticism, asceticism. You don't need any of that in order to attain and to maintain your relationship with God. All of that is secured for you in Christ. However, though you are complete in Christ... Now that you are in Christ, your life has to be absolutely different from the lives of those around you. Your life as a Christian must be lived with a different perspective. Now he gives one overarching command in chapter 3 verse 1. And that command is keep seeking the things above. And then he follows with specific explanation of what that looks like. This is the overarching command. I want you to live with heavenly perspective. Keep seeking the things above. And in order to do that, 
At least in the first 11 verses, he gives two general commands. Number one, you have to think heavenly things. And then he's going to say you have to mortify earthly things. Now, in a couple of weeks, we're going to get to verses 11 and 12, and we'll talk about that. But for this morning, I want us to look specifically at the first four verses. I want us to examine these two commands that we have here. The first command is keep seeking heavenly things. Seek heavenly things. And the second command, think heavenly things. Think heavenly things. Now, Paul's argument in this in these verses is clear. Since you are a new creation in Christ, live on earth with heavenly focus. Since you are a new creation in Christ, live on earth with heavenly focus. Join me as I read from chapter 2, beginning in verse 20, through, three, chapter, through chapter 3, verse 4. Paul says, If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, and do not touch, which all refer to things destined to perish with use in accordance with the commandments and teachings of man. These are matters which have to be sure the appearance of wisdom and self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on things on the, that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. We're beginning with the first Command, seek heavenly things. Now, if you look at the first word of chapter 3, he says, therefore. Therefore, so we know Paul has drawn a conclusion to what he was just saying. Since you have died with Christ, verse 20, you are no longer subject to legalistic rules, to mystical experiences, or to ascetic regiments. You don't need any of those. You have died to those things and dead people don't respond. Dead people don't respond. Now, it is a natural human tendency for us to think that I have to do something so that I would be accepted by God. That's why you had so many things in the previous chapter that tells you you need to do this or you need to do that, you need to do this or the other. Because when people start to think that if only I do this and this and this, then I would be accepted by God. Or I'm going to maintain my relationship with God by doing some of these things. My works will somehow appease God. Now, Bible condemns that through and through. From the Genesis to Revelation, you are never saved by your works. Yes, you are saved by works, but not your own. You are saved by the work of Christ. The only thing that saves you, the only thing that pleases God is what Christ has accomplished on your behalf. However, even though you are saved by grace, your standing before God is guaranteed by the work of Christ. It does not mean that you don't work. I mean, we love Ephesians chapter 2. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourself, it is the gift of God, so that no one may, be, may boast. Beautiful. Grace, you have to do nothing 
God saves you. It's apart from works. Neither your faith, neither your works. Nothing gives you that standing before God. But Paul doesn't stop there. Because in verse 10, he says, for we are his worksmanship, created in Christ Jesus. For what? For good works which he prepared beforehand for us to walk in them. Now that you are saved, you are going to work. And that is the transition that Paul makes it here. Now, we as Christians, we cannot create this false dichotomy between grace and work. As if, as if grace is, you got to do nothing. And then work is like, you got to, no, both of those are true. You are safe and you're standing before God is based on the work of Christ. But now that you are in Christ, and now that Christ is in you, you are absolutely going to work. And that is what the whole point of chapters 3 and 4 is going to be. In chapters 3 and 4, he's going to emphasize what you have to do in your response to God for what he has done to you. Grace compels you to work. In Titus chapter 2, verse 11, Paul says this, For by grace you have been saved. Or he says, for, by, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. That's beautiful. The grace of God has come, and the grace of God has brought salvation to all men. And then listen to what he says. Instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, and to live sensibly and righteously and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. The same grace that saved you is the same grace that compels you to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly and righteously in this present age. As Paul transitions in this chapter, he's going to say, now that you are in Christ, now that you understand that you are complete, now that your standing is guaranteed before Christ, you're not working to maintain or to attain your relationship with God. You're working because the grace of God is in you. Now, it's not enough just to say, hey, don't do this. Don't do this. And that's what Paul's been doing in chapter 2. He says, hey, don't fall for this. Don't believe this. Don't hold on to this. That's what he's been doing in chapter 2. And in chapter 3, he transitions. He's saying, well, don't do that. But this is what I want you to do. This is where I want to go. Now, in verse 1, he gives a command. And he gives two reasons why you should obey that command. The command is simple. Keep seeking the things above. Now, this is a command to all believers. This is not just for select few or for some super spiritual believers. No, it's a command to all believers. The command is in the present tense, which means at all points of your life, every single day, this is supposed to be your attitude. You, this is supposed to be your focus. You are seeking the things above. Now, to seek simply means to aim at, to aspire to, to set your heart on, to focus. And Paul says, this is what I want you to do. This is what believers are marked by. Believers are marked by they're focused on the things above. Now, what are the things above here? Paul defines it for us here. He says, seek the things above. And then he equates it with the place where Christ sits. Now, Christ obviously is sitting in heaven. Christ has ascended. He's going to tell us. He is seated at the right hand of God. This is where Christ is. And Paul says, I want you to have your focus on the things above. And the things above is the heavenly realm where Christ sits. Now, the same phrase will appear again in verse 3. He says, things above. And then that phrase, if you look at verse 3, he contrasts it here with the things on the earth. 
So there is this earthly realm, and then he says there is this heavenly realm. So the things above refer to the heavenly things, spiritual realities, which are ours in Christ Jesus. And notice, these are the things that you don't necessarily see with your eyes. These are the things that you can't touch. These are the things that you can't, oh, look at this. No, it is something that you know that's there, but the world does not see. And we'll come back to this a little bit later on. Paul says, if you are a believer, the very first thing I want you to tell you, that the focus of your life should be on heavenly things. I thought about it, and this is a great parallel to what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. Remember, Jesus says in Matthew 6, but seek first what? The kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. He says, if you have your focus in the right place, everything else will come along. Seek first the kingdom of God. Set your mind on the heavenly things. Now, if you are a Christian, Paul is saying that you are operating under different realms. You are operating with different priorities. Your decisions that you make, the choices that you make in life, they are all filtered through this prism of heaven. You look at a Christian and you see how he lives, how he works, how he raises kids, how he vacations, how he does everything. It has a certain flavor to it because everything about his life is filtered through the heavenly realm. And one of the pictures of Christian life in the Bible is one of a soldier. I was thinking like American soldier. He's deployed overseas. When he's deployed overseas, he's operating there under the authority of U.S. government. Now, the commanders determine what he does. They determine where he does it. They determine how he does it. His life is lived under the authority of someone else, even though he's in a different country at the moment. Now, Paul is saying, if you're a believer, you're not a citizen of this country. You are a citizen of another country, and you have another king, and you are operating in this life through the uh, prism and under the authority of another king. There's king who governs universe, and he is your king who now sits in heaven. And the way you live your life, the way you make your decisions, the way you make choices in this life, it is always filtered through this prism Hey, how does this affect the kingdom of God? How does this affect my standing as a Christian? Paul says, if you're going to live a Christian life, this is supposed to be your first priority in life, to have your focus in the right place. C.T. Studd wrote an amazing poem about this perspective. One life to live. Listen to these words. Two little lines I heard one day, traveling along life's busy way, bringing conviction to my heart, and from my mind would not depart. Only one life, it will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, yes, only one. Soon will its fleeting hours be done. Then in that day, my Lord, to meet and stand before his judgment seat. Only one life. It will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life, the still small voice, gently pleads for a better choice, bidding me selfish aim to leave and to God's holy will to cleave. 
Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life. A few brief years, each, each with its burdens, hopes, and fears. Each with its claims and must fulfill living for self or for his will. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. When this bright world would tempt me sore, when Satan would a victory score, when self would seek to ha have its way, then help me, Lord, with joy to say, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Give me, Father, a purpose deep. Enjoy, O sorrow, thy word to keep. Faithful and true, whatever the strive, pleasing thee in my daily life. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Oh, let my love with fervor burn. And from the world now let me turn, living for thee and thee alone, bringing thee pleasure on thy throne. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life. Yes, only one. Now let me say, thy will be done. And when at last I'll heal the call, I know I say, was worth it all. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. And when I'm dying, how happy I'll be if the lamp of my life has been burned out for thee. See, here is a man who says, I want to live my life with one purpose in mind so that I may carry out the will of heaven in my life so that I can live my life with heavenly perspective so Paul says keep seeking the things above and he doesn't just give command he gives two reasons why you should do it two reasons reason number one you must seek heavenly things because you have been raised to a new life look at how the verse starts therefore if you have been raised up with Christ. Now, this is a parallel verse to verse 20, because in verse 20 of previous chapter, he says, if you have died with Christ. Now, you heard already that this is a first-class condition, which is to better, better to translate not with if, but with since. So literally, he says, since you have been buried with Christ, since you have been raised up with Christ. Paul assumes this as a fact. Every Christian has been raised up with Christ. Now we know, we studied chapter 2, verse 12, that he's talking about your spiritual reality. It is a spiritual reality for every single believer. You have died with Christ, and you were raised with Christ. You were born again to a new life. Now, if you have been born again to a new life, wouldn't it make sense for you to live with new priorities in life? If you have been born again to live in a different realm, wouldn't it make sense for you to live this way? In fact, Paul says that if you are in Christ, you have already been seated in heaven. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 6 says, God raised us up with him. Notice the connection between our resurrection, spiritual resurrection. And he seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. He's saying, this is not your home. This world is not your home. You belong to a different place. Your new life began when you lifted your eyes to the one who is in heaven. When you lifted your eyes to Christ. And now Paul says, I want you to keep looking to Christ. 
keep seeking heavenly things, the things that are above. The one who has been raised with Christ must live life of Christ. Because Christ is now in you and you have been raised up to live that new life. And not only that, second reason he says you must seek heavenly things because Christ is in heaven. Christ is in heaven. He says, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Now, up until this point, Paul has been laboring hard to show us that as believers, our identity is wrapped up in Christ. We are one with Christ. We are seated with Christ. If you are a Christian, you long to be with Christ. Just like, you know, when you got married, you wanted to be with your spouse. And in this case, he's saying that if you have been joined to Christ, you want to think Christ. You want to be with Christ. And guess what? Christ is now in heaven. And therefore, your mind should be on heavenly things. Your mind should be with Christ. Christ is now, he says, seated at the right hand of God. Place of privilege, place of high authority. Christ is sitting on the throne and he's governing the affairs of man. In your life, he says, you are to fulfill the you, you are to fulfill the will of Christ who is now seating in heaven. Now we can say it this way that as Christians, we are to arrange the affairs of our life with the perspective of heaven, because our king is sitting in heaven. This is how you're supposed to live. The decisions that you will make tomorrow morning for your family, for your work, for your life. You have to think through the prism of what does God think about this? What does heaven think about this? Your focus is not just about here and now, as we'll see in just a second. So the first command is this overarching command, overarching principle. Now, would you say that's true of you? Would you say that that's how you make your decisions? Would you say that when I need to make my decision, the first thing on my mind is, well, what does heaven think about this? How's this going to advance the kingdom of God? Now, that's the mindset Paul says you ought to have as a believer. And then Paul gets a little more specific. He gets a little more specific with the second command. He says, I want you to think heavenly things. Look at verse 2. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth. Now, to set your mind literally means to think It's appropriate that Paul starts here because Paul has just condemned mysticism. He has just condemned spiritual experiences that people have and that they place their faith in. And it is appropriate for Paul to focus on your mind. You see, salvation begins, new life begins with the transformation of your mind. You hear the gospel And through the gospel, God changes your mind. He gives you the mind of Christ so that you begin to love the things that you once hated. That's where the new life begins. At regeneration, you get the mind of Christ. And from that point on, every single change in your life begins with the transformation of your mind. If your mind is not transformed, your life will not be transformed. And that's why the first thing that Paul focuses on, he says, I want you to think heavenly things. Now, this is not the only place where Paul talks about it. Romans chapter 12, after he's given us theology, 
the first 11 chapters. He says in Romans 12, 2, he says, do not be conformed to this world, but what? Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. In Philippians chapter 4, verse 8, he says, finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. This is where I want your mind to stay. This is what I want you to think about. Notice in our section when he will finish up, in verse 10, he says this, put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. It is the knowledge of Christ revealed in his word that renews your mind and enables you to live a different life. Now, it is not spiritual to bypass your mind. In fact, God never does. He always operates through your mind. In 1 Corinthians chapter 14, you might recall, they had an issue in the church. There were some people who showed up to church and they liked to speak gibberish. And no one understood anything. And they're so super spiritual because they're exercising their gift. And so Paul is writing to them in 1 Corinthians and he says to them, guys, I have gift of languages, but I don't use them in the church. He says in verse 19, in the church, I desire to speak five words with my mouth so that I may instruct others also rather than 10,000 words in a tongue. It is better for me to get up here and preach a sermon that consists of five words that you can understand than for me to get up here and talk for an hour about things that you don't understand and don't know, don't comprehend what I'm talking about. That's what he's saying. Why? Because if you can't comprehend it with your mind, it doesn't do anything for you. It's like me turning on Chinese television and watching it. I have no idea what they're talking about. It does not help you. And so he says, the way God works in you is the truth of God must be comprehended by your mind so that your mind is renewed and that will compel you to action. In order for you to live heaven, Paul says you have to think heaven. You have to think heaven. Paul is commanding all of the believers to continually think about heavenly things. Now, this is your inner attitude of the heart. Mine is hidden from people. I don't even know what you're thinking at the moment right now, right? But he says, when you are all alone, anywhere you are, this is what your mind ought to be consumed with. Now, it's not a surprise that if you are consumed with earthly things, that you will live earthly lives, right? Because what you think, that's what you're going to do. And Paul says, I want you to shift your focus and have your mindset on heaven. At the same time, we have to say that merely thinking about heavenly things is not enough. Because thinking is only the first step. It's only the first step in the long process. Why? Think about it this way. When you think of the truth of God, it brings conviction. God's truth, when comprehended by your mind, affects your conscience. You might be thinking and you say, uh, yeah, I do this and I don't do that. Yeah, I need to do better here. Why? Because it is your conscience which is informed by the word of God. It's like a smoke alarm in your house. It goes off. When you're doing something that is wrong, all of a sudden it goes off. 
Now, for some people, it doesn't go off because either it's completely seared, it's like, you know, smoke detector with no batteries, or you just don't know what is right and wrong because conscience is not infallible. Conscience needs to be informed by the truth of God. And so he says, what you need to do is you need to use your brain, you need to use your mind, mind that Christ has given to you, so that you understand the truth of God. And when the truth of God is applied to your heart, it will activate your conscience, and your conscience will compel you to action. Why? Because when you understand what God wants you to do, and your conscience is telling you this is right, this is wrong, and then your will is engaged. Your will is engaged because it leads to action. Well, if God wants me to do this, if God is commanding me to do this, I got to do this. So your mind engages your conscience. Your conscience compels your will. And then your will compels your passions. Because God has given us ability to feel. God has given us ability to desire things. And when you have strong desires for the will of God... You have strong desires to be obedient to God. Nobody's going to stop you. I mean, it could be used as a positive and it could be used as a negative. I mean, you can think about lustful passions. You, can, you might know somebody or you might have heard of somebody. Someone who is lusting after somebody else. And they know that this will destroy their marriage. They know that this will destroy their reputation. But they can't stop. Why? Because that passion controls them. At the same time, you can look at someone like Paul. He has this passion to make Christ known. And no matter what happens, no matter whether he's put in prison, whether he's beaten or he's shepherd, nobody's going to stop him. Why? Because that passion for the glory of God compels him to go. But it all starts with you having the right mind. Were you understanding the truth of God? So we set our minds on heavenly things in order to affect our conscience and compel our will to follow passionately after God and his will. Now, when we say that you set your minds on the things above, it's not that you just sit there and you think like, I mean, I wonder what heaven's going to be like. I mean, the streets of gold, sitting back, doing nothing, and it's beyond that. Because you will see in the remainder of this book, there's nothing about that. He says, set your mind on the heavenly things, which means that you consider your life, Consider your family, consider your work, and all of that filtered through the prism of heaven, and heaven determines how you live right now. That's why in the remainder of this chapter, he's going to say, if you're in Christ, then there are some things that you got to put away. If you're in Christ, then there are some things that you need to put on. If you're in Christ, then this is how you live as a wife. This is how you live as a husband. This is how you live as a child. This is how you live as a worker. Because everything in your life is affected by that heavenly perspective. That is what, he, what he's going to say. And when he says here, do not set your mind on earthly things. Now we can say earthly things consist of two things. There are some things that are obviously sinful. And he'll condemn those in verses 5 through 9. And we'll study that in two weeks. But you know, earthly things sometimes refer to things that are not necessarily sinful. I mean, you can see this in Hebrews chapter 12. The author says this, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. He says, if you're running the race, you might just have some extra weight on you that you need to get rid of. Now, some earthly things, they're not bad in and of themselves. It's not wrong to live in a nice house. 
It's not wrong to drive a luxury car. It's not wrong to go on vacation a couple times a year. But if your life revolves around that, then something is wrong. You cannot let the earthly realm determine why you live and how you live. Now, yes, you still live in the world. Yes, you still live here and now. But how you live and the choices that you make, they are governed by the perspective of heaven. Because you are in Christ, you have been raised to a new life. You have higher purpose in this existence than to just merely acquire earthly things. Just remember that everything in this life will eventually go up in flames. No matter what you gain in this life, it will go up in flames. And there's only one thing that will last, what's done for Christ. That is what he's saying here. Now, Paul, again, not only commands you to think heavenly things, but he again gives you two reasons why you should do it. There are two reasons here. Number one, you must think heavenly things because you have died to your old life. Look at verse three again. Four. Four provides a reason. You have command, set your mind. And this is the reason why you have to set your mind. Set your mind on heavenly things, for you have died. Again, this is a reference to believers' identification with Christ. You are dead to your former life. Question, does a dead person respond to stimuli? No. You can go to a funeral, you could poke him, you could touch him. He won't respond because he's dead. Now he says in the same way, as a believer, because you are identified with Christ, you don't respond to the earthly things. Now you say, well, I mean, if I'm dead, and I am, and Paul says that you are dead in Christ, why are you still able to go after earthly things? I mean, even Paul here, he assumes that that is going to be our struggle. Paul can relate to you. Why? Because if you weren't able to go after earthly things, then Paul would not have to command you not to set your mind on earthly things. You see, though we are spiritually dead, though we are identified with Christ, we still live in the sinful flesh. We still have that struggle with sin. Every day we have to renew our minds. Why? Because if you don't renew your mind, you kind of fall back into your old ways, into your former life. I mean, if you're a believer at one time or another, you can relate to Paul when he says in Romans chapter 7, for the good that I want, I do not do. But I practice the very evil I do not want. Because you will always have this struggle. When he's going to say, consider the members of your body as dead to immorality. Sin should not be master over you. It's because it is possible that even as believer, you go back to your former way of life. And that's what he's saying, that you need to continually renew your mind in Christ so that you don't fall back to your former life. Now, you don't have to live that life anymore. You are no longer slave to sin. You have been redeemed. You have the power to live a different life because Christ lives in you. You see, your identity with Christ is what enables you to live a different life. For us believers, you might be struggling with sin, there might be things that you have fallen into again and again and again. But you know what? There is hope for all of us. There is hope for you that because you are in Christ, you could live victorious life. Not because you're super spiritual and super powerful, but because God lives in you. You have to, as Paul says here, set your minds on things of above and God will live through you. And there is hope for you that you can overcome your sin in your life. Now think about people who 
get second chance in life? What about a criminal who committed heinous crime and he spent 30 years in prison? He did his time and he walks out a free man. Now he's got an opportunity to live a new life. But what if this man goes to his house, locks him up in a small room, isolates himself from everyone else, and continues to live on his prison schedule because he got used to it in the last 30 years. You look at him, it's like, what's wrong with you, man? You got a chance to live a new life. You got a chance to be different. Your former life is done. You are now free to live a different life. Now, Paul is saying that if you are in Christ, you have been set free to live a new life. Don't go back to your cell and live there. Don't go back and live your former life. You have been set free. Set your minds on things above, for you have died. And then he gives a second reason. You must think heavenly things. Why? Because Christ now is your life. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Now, this is an amazing statement. In fact, in verse 4, Paul is going to say that Christ, who is our life. I mean, this was reality for Paul. In Philippians 1.21, Paul says, For me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. The worst thing they can do to me is kill me. And when they kill me, they bring me closer to Christ. So no worries. For me, to live is Christ. And notice he does not say that Jesus is just the source of your life. Jesus is your life. There's a difference between that. In John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. In 1 John 5, 11, John says this, and the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his son. And he says, you live because Christ lives in you. Christ is the one who dwells in you, and he gives you the energy. He's the center. He's the goal, and he's everything of your life. The only reason why you exist, the only reason why you have your spiritual life, is because you have Christ living on the inside of you. That's why you can live a victorious life. That's why you can live a holy life, because Christ lives in you, and he gives you that life. Notice Paul says, your life is hidden with Christ. An interesting statement. I think we can say at least two things about this. First of all, your life in Christ is a secure life. Your life in Christ is a secure life. There is absolute security for you as a believer. He says, Your life, no one can take it away because it's in Christ and Christ is in you. In John chapter 10, famous words, Jesus says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them. And they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I give them life. They're in my hand. And my hand is in the Father's hand. And in order for someone to take away your life, they got to get through the Father. And they got to get through Jesus to take away your life from you. He says no one can do that. No one will snatch them out of my hand. And in this case, he says, your life, it is hidden with Christ. And then another thing that we can say here, that your life in Christ, in the sense, is a secret life. It's a secret life. 
Because it says your life is hidden with Christ. Now, I'm sure there is a play here on Colossian heresy. Because you had people there who claimed to have secret knowledge. Oh, they had this hidden experience that they could only share with you if you were initiated. Paul says, nonsense. You have life. And your life is hidden with Christ. It's a life that you can't necessarily observe with your eyes. You cannot see it with your physical eyes. That's why the world might look at Christians and they might think that you're crazy. Why are you making the decision that you make? Why are you making choices that you make? Why do you live this way? When you can get all that stuff, why are you giving all that up? For what? They cannot understand. They cannot comprehend because they cannot see it. If you live with heavenly priorities, some people might think that you're crazy. But you know what? You live that way because you're like Elisha, who sees things that other people don't see, who understand realities that other people don't comprehend. And at the moment, it might be a hidden life. It might be a secret life. But you know what? It will not always be this way. It will not always be this way because verse 4 says, when Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. It says, when Jesus returns, at his coming, everything will become obvious. At his return, believers will be glorified with Christ. And though right now the world might look at you and think that you're crazy, when Christ returns, they will be the ones who are crazy. We read 1 John, the beginning of the service, 1 John 3, 2 says, Beloved, now we are children of God. Right now we already are the children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. But we know when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. When Christ is revealed, then you, will also, will be, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Until then, the world does not understand you. You live on a completely different plane than the world. But you know that's the case because you have the life of God on the inside. Now, you might have observed that in this short passage here, Paul gives us three different aspects of salvation. He says, in the past, you have been raised with Christ. That happened at the moment of your salvation. In the present, your life is hidden with Christ. And in the future, you will be revealed with Christ. As you meditate on these verses, just ask yourself, does this characterize my life? Do I live this life in light of heaven. I was reminded of a story of John Patton. He was a missionary to New Hebrides, which is a strip of 80 islands in the South Pacific. First Christians that went there, landed there in 1839. Their names were John Williams and James Harris. Within minutes of arriving, both of them were clubbed to death, cooked and eaten. 19 years later, John Patton was called to go there as a missionary. And he was under enormous pressure by his family, his church, his friends who were telling him, you should not go. It makes absolutely no sense. One of them, Mr. Dixon, wrote this. The cannibals, you will be eaten by cannibals. And this was his response. Mr. Dixon, you are advancing years now, and your own prospect is soon to be laved in the grave. 
there to be eaten by worms. I confess to you that if I can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I'm eaten by cannibals or by worms. And in the great day, my resurrection body will rise as fair as yours in the likeness of our risen Redeemer. Talk about someone who lived his life with heavenly perspective. Now, most of us are not called to go to cannibals, but every single one of us is called to live with the same perspective. May God give us grace to live this way. Father, we thank you for this reminder, and I pray that these would not be just words on the page, but that they would compel us to live different lives, that tomorrow morning they would compel us to make different choices so that we would seek to make much of you, so that we would seek to bring much glory to you. Use us, we pray, in the name of Christ. Amen.